0: All right, team, let me tell you about NewZest, clean plant-based nutrition products to meet the demands of modern life. And I'm super excited to announce that they are a sponsor of Wikipedia. With over a decade of experience and a presence in more than 20 countries worldwide, NewZest has emerged as a leader in providing innovative solutions for those seeking healthier and more sustainable choices. In a world where people are looking for clean labels, easily digestible ingredients, and allergen-free options, New delivers and totally has you covered. Clean Lean Protein is a plant-based protein powder and contains all nine essential amino acids. It encourages recovery, vitality, muscle repair, and growth, and helps you hit your protein requirements, which you know I am all about. One of my favorite products is their Good Green Vitality. It's the gold standard in multi It's designed to make complex nutrition simple. The Super Blend is carefully formulated to address all aspects of health. 75 ingredients working together to support everything from digestion, immunity and healthy aging to stress, energy and cognition in one daily serve. Grab yours today, guys, with a sweet 20% discount for being a listener of the show with the code MYKAPEDIA over at their website, and we will pop a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. All right, now back to the show. Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is MYKAPEDIA, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I'm delighted to bring to you the conversation that I had with Brandon DeCruz. He's like one of the goats in the physique and body transformation space, and I would say that if there's anything that Brandon doesn't know, it is probably not worth knowing about. So, we discussed what got Brandon interested in diet and fitness initially. What fuels his desire now to stay current and relevant in the space which is largely driven by the persistent myths that exist here and how he addresses these myths with evidence-based information and that evidence comes not only from his tireless work at staying up to date with the literature but of course his own clinical experience and what he sees with his clients. We discuss common mistakes that people make when trying to transform their physique, what people can expect if they work with Brandon, the concept of energy flux, the importance of stress management, and so much more. Brandon is a wealth of information, and it is mind-blowing, the amount that he knows. And we even kick off the episode just chatting about something random, which was not part of our sort of episode debrief, and he just like goes for it. He is amazing. So for those of you unfamiliar with Brandon, Brandon Cruz is an online nutrition and physique coach and sports nutritionist. He is also a national level NPC physique competitor and an internationally published fitness model who's written articles and filmed educational content for publications like Men's Fitness Magazine and Bodybuilding.com. Brandon has spent over 12 years working within the sports nutrition and fitness industries and has coached every type of athlete including Olympia level professional men's physique competitors, college athletes, MMA fighters, CrossFit competitors and lifestyle clients and if you follow Brandon on Instagram he does a great job of profiling all levels of his clientele. It is awesome and Brandon believes in blending what he's What's been proven in research with his own anecdotal and firsthand in the trenches experience to improve body composition, optimize performance and enhance health in order to help his clients achieve their goals, whether that be building muscle, losing body fat, increasing performance and or optimizing health and longevity. So this is what Brandon refers to as his health centric coaching model, as he believes that improving one's health is the cornerstone to optimizing their physical goals. So you can see there are a lot of synergies with the same, with the values that both Brandon and I have, which just made this for a great conversation. So I've popped a link to where you can find Brandon on both his Instagram page and, of course, his website. Uh, and, of course, he has a podcast, Chasing Clarity, and I've got a link into the, his podcast as well. And you will just learn so much from him there. So before we crack on into the conversation, I would just like to remind you that the best way to support this podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast listening platform. And that increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on this show. All right, guys, enjoy the conversation that I have with Brandon DeCruz. Um, uploading when I push stop.
1: Perfect. Sounds good.
0: Amazing. Is it an aura ring you've got there? I ring? do.
1: I do. <sighs> right there.
0: What do you think of them? Are they good? Are they worth it?
1: I'm going to be honest with you. I've went through three of them so far. So I'm not going to say that they're good in terms of durability, but I will say that if you actually look in the research on aura rings, not great, they're not going to be comparative to polysomnography. Nothing is going to be. But from a sleep tracker perspective, probably the best in terms of awareness, uh, at least for sleep depth. Um, I really like it. It's very accurate for, for resting heart rate, heart rate. Um, I don't actually trust the HRV. And and obviously there's there's a lot of literature on HRV. We really can't use it in the context of resistance training. Um, however, it really has allowed me to be more cognizant of my sleep patterns, of the time I'm going to sleep, the sleep latency, some deviation. So I don't drink alcohol, but for instance, I have many clients that do. So we're able to see these little um, deviations in their sleep quality, their sleep length, and their sleep latency as a result of things that they may not have realized. So in the States now, uh, marijuana is legalized. It's not something I partake in, but many of my clients do. And we've seen um, deviations in their sleep quality as a result of that.
0: Oh, that is interesting. I wouldn't have anticipated that with uh, marijuana, actually. You know, I've always, there are so many things that you can track with uh, sleep and diet and exercise and, you know, feelings and all the rest of it. And there are definitely personality types, I think, that could get quite, um, obsessive isn't the word, but a little Mm -hmm. bit obsessive, maybe it is.
1: No, absolutely. And there is something called orthosomnia. So that is an obsession about sleep that actually limits your your ability to actually get to sleep. So for instance, uh, if someone is obsessive about their sleep, they're wor- so worried about not getting good sleep that night before that it becomes just like any you know, uh, obsession, it becomes limiting, self-limiting. So I don't allow it to do that. I, I will tell you personally, uh, and this is what I do with my clients as well. Not every one of my clients utilizes this. It's about a $300 device in the States. So it's just not within everyone's budget. But if I, and I tell this to my clients, I do the same thing. Listen, do not reinforce negative biases. So if you know that you didn't get a good night's sleep the night before, you don't need to track your order to see that it says five hours and that you're in <laughs> yeah. the red. Uh, that's actually, are you familiar with the whoop device? yeah okay so I, I utilize the whoop as well i've utilized apple um watch all these different things so with the whoop i really didn't like uh first of all it doesn't have a step tracker uh so that was a little bit off for me and then the other thing is it's all on a color device it's almost like the reds cat you know what i mean where it's like yes. well now they have a, a new reds cat but the old one was like yellow orange uh, red You know, or green, yellow, red. And as soon as you see the red, it's just a reinforcing thing within your head, like, oh, I shouldn't train today. And really that's not what it is. We all have been in a a state of mind or in a a place in our lives. We got a shitty night of sleep the night before. And yes, sleep has detrimental impacts on a long-term perspective on performance, body composition, appetite, but one day it's not going to make or break you. And they've actually done sleep deprivation studies for 24 hours where they look at power performance in pretty high level strength athletes. And within one day, let's keep in the conversation, Context of one day, it doesn't show a diminishment in peak power. So, you know, just you know, take that with what you will. But a lot of times, I'm like, listen, if I want to track it, I do it over a week scale, and I only look back a week later. Yeah. So when I I put it into a tracker yes. for, for myself, but I only look at back. You know, the closest I will be will be several days away from that night's sleep.
0: Yeah, great. That's so good. Um, and it's really interesting what you say about confirming that negative bias. So many people do that around, or the, the, the stress that that it creates really has an impact on how people then approach diet or the social setting or the um, sort of situation they're in, which of course we're going to talk a lot about on absolutely. today's podcast. Um, haven't really introduced you. We'll do in the intro. Um, absolutely. But you were just like straight into it, Brandon. I'm so using this for my podcast. Um, oh, wow. I, I didn't
1: even realize we were rolling. Uh, <laughs> oh but yeah, uh, we're totally I'm, rolling. And look I'm, at I'm you.
0: i <laughs> You were just like out the gate. It's awesome. Um, but you know, this time of year around Christmas, so many people stress about the things that they can't control with the social setting and mm-hmm. the, you know, food environment. And I think that, and this is what I tell my clients, and I'm I'm pretty sure you'd probably say the same thing, that the stress that that person creates in their head about the upcoming situation is likely going to be far worse than actually just going along and enjoying whatever is in, you know whatever is on their plate
1: one hundred percent, I think a lot of times and this is something we're all guilty of doing oftentimes we Forecast something into the future, which may not even take place, whether it be, say, a stressful situation where we think we're going to be pressured into drinking alcohol or into overindulging, or we think we're going to slip off our plan. And usually that self, it almost becomes like a self fulfilling prophecy, meaning you you forecast this into the future and then you end up going off and doing that same thing. And so, a lot of times with the holidays, especially, we have to realize, and I try to make this really try to separate this, this concept out, like realize that food is a part of our culture. It isn't, I'm a nutritionist. I, you have a PhD in nutrition. So like we are people that are very integrated into this and this is a massive component of my life. But at the same time, I realize food is a part of our culture. Food is a part of engagement. It's a part of community. It, think about the, the expression, breaking bread like that has been since the beginning of time we've we've utilized that that statement and that analogy essentially and so i really try to get clients to realize not to stress about those things but also to realize that an occasion should not just be about the food and i think that being able to take a step back be a little bit more mindful about these occasions and realize that this occasion say it be we just passed thanksgiving in the states or whether it be christmas which is going to be coming up in the next week and a half just realize that really the occasion is about getting together with people that you love and make it about that first and foremost, the the food and all the the indulgences that come along with it should be a secondary benefit of it, but it should never be the focus because I do find that a lot of people that have what I would refer to as a restriction-based mindset. So they're restricting themselves, you know, excessively all the time, and then they're kind of those personalities that they sh- swing from different extremes of the pendulum. So they're they're on plan and they're off the plan. They have dichotomous thinking about about nutrition in terms of black and white mentality. There's good food, there's bad food. You know, there's their cheat days and then there's on diet days, and it's almost like they're on the bandwagon or they're completely off and they're veering off the the beaten path essentially. And so if we can just get into more of a mindset of moderation and mindfulness around nutrition, around training around movement around all these things and realize there are times to indulge and enjoy ourselves, but never make it just about that. It shouldn't be that this is an anticipatory event that is giving you stress. It's giving you anxiety, or it's giving you such a craving, like you're over. So for instance, with there's many strategies that we could utilize to uh, curtail the decremental effects of overindulging during a holiday. But one strategy that I used to utilize with clients, so I'm guilty of this myself, but I will say that I've changed my ways. I've been coaching over 10 years at this point. Um, And so over the years, I've realized that this isn't a good approach is a lot of people will excessively restrict themselves prior to the holiday themselves. So that could be fasting. That was something I was never really into, but people will fast the entire day of a holiday or an occasion or a celebratory event, or they'll under consume in the days previous. And a lot of times all that does is increase hunger hormones. It's to increase your, your drive, your appetite, your drive to eat essentially. And then you're going to overdo it as a result of almost the preceding factors in which you set yourself up. So a lot of times what I, I try to tell clients to do, go to that day in a normal setting so it could be that you cut back on the energy dense food sources that you have earlier in the day but you prioritize protein and a plant so that could be protein and veggies or protein and, and a fruit source something that's fiber containing something that's to be highly satiating uh, start your meal off i really i have a couple of rules when it comes to or, or principles high priority principles that i really try to get clients to integrate around holiday meals where calories are going to be abundant to say the least and so that could be what i refer to as a two cup rule so let's utilize get a diet coke and of water and drink that before your meal so we're going to have that that um essentially you're going to increase satiety by uh you know essentially stretching the gastric receptors in the stomach which initiate fullness that you know a fullness response in the hypothalamus of your brain uh it could be starting your meal off with a large you know, great serving of a nutrient dense protein source and some veggies or salad. So you're going to increase your satiety value. And then once you get to the indulgent things that are energy dense, like your, your cakes and your pastas and all these different things that you really look forward to, you're less likely to overdo it and feel guilt as a result. And then also another factor to that is not overly restricting yourself in the day or the weeks prior so that you know, you don't go into that meal in a predisposed state to overeat. But if you see that you did overeat and that's all well and good, we all make mistakes. And and when it comes to a holiday that it really even shouldn't be looked at as a mistake, we shouldn't be punishing ourselves preceding that however if you did go over your calorie budget for the week or whatever it may be we could take the next couple days and just pull back a little bit think about it you had a ton of food you have enough more than enough energy and and i'll tell you personally i generally don't have any clients dieting unless they're competitors during the the holiday season so most of them are in or at maintenance or in a surplus so now we have more than enough exogenous energy and endogenous energy so sword substrates and so then the next couple days we can pull things back a little bit we can take carbs around you know, meals that aren't in the peri-workout perimeter. So not your pre- or post-workout meal, but in those later meals, we can go with utilizing something like a fiber-rich Um, veggie source rather than a starchy carbohydrate. And just little swaps, we can take out the oil in your meal or the nuts in your meal, something that's going to eliminate 100 calories, but isn't really going to take away from the satiety value or the protein amount in that meal, which is more beneficial from a satiety aspect and adherence aspect. And then also from, you know, a stimulating muscle protein synthesis aspect, which is really vital, especially on a a time by time basis in terms of optimizing body composition and muscle uh, retention or building.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. And, you know, people often catastrophize that one or two days of overeating. But in the big scheme of things, it really, you know, and and I I mean, you, Brandon, must be one of the most informed um, literature-based. Your brain, I just, your brain just works so, like, amazingly. It seems like you must remember almost everything you read because you, like, people would be listening to this going, is he reading off something? And you're literally (laughs) just coming out of your mouth. Um, But- As I understand it from the literature, you know, it actually, from a metabolism perspective, when we overeat, our body just ends up working harder to oxidize the energy. And you're actually like, it's fat gain is, it's not, fat gain isn't an inevitable part of overeating for a day. Of course, if you do it several days in a row, we're going to be gaining body fat because you're in a surplus, but one day is not really neither here nor there. And in fact, you probably just get a really great workout the next day because of it. 100%.
1: There are so many benefits to really embracing that and realizing that it isn't this... you know, I try to look at things through a context of moderation and not bullseye or bust. It's not on plan, off plan, or, or you mess something up in the process. There is no, you can't F this up essentially. It, as long as you're consistent, and it's what we do consistently over time that really makes the difference. So, what you do habitually, not what you do one day out of the year or one day a week or whatever it may be. And so, within that meal, even if we look at the context of overfeeding, so if we go back to a study by uh, Levine et al., 1999, he did an overfeeding study for eight weeks and they gave these individuals, both males and females, 1,000 calories over. Over, their maintenance calorie intake. Now, now hear me out on this. Most people are not going to be able and, and wouldn't be able to eat that much more than their daily intake. And so think about it. Even if you want a calorie, oh, thousand calories over in a day, most people are really catastrophizing that they're going to gain fat in this. However, when we actually look at the results of the study, first of all, they saw a massive increase on the average in NEAT. So non-exercise activity thermogenesis, where the average participant Increased their total daily energy expenditure by an average, I believe, of 328 calories. However, there was one individual that increased his non exercise activity thermogenesis by 700. So he burned off. You know, seventy percent of that. And now, keep in mind, not only did he get an increase in, in uh, need, we also see an, an increase in thermic effect of feeding. So, think about it. if you increase your calories by a thousand calories. Generally, on average, the average person their thermic effect of feeding accounts for ten percent of their total daily energy expenditure. So, if we take a thousand, we get ten percent of that. That's a hundred calorie increase. So, you can add that to the average of three hundred and twenty-eight calories. So now we're at four hundred twenty-eight calories. Also, we see in uh, overfeeding studies. There's a uh, overfeeding study by Harris et al., which actually Levine is a, a secondary author on this, and it's two. 2000- 2005 and they looked at overfeeding in the same context but they specifically looked at increases in rmr from uh chronic overfeeding of eight weeks length and they saw up to a 15 percent increase in participants resting metabolic rate so say we go on average the average in that study was 10 percent so you increase that by another 100 calories so now you've overfed by a thousand calories chronically and you went from having a thousand calorie surplus to increasing your energy expenditure by 528 calories however we we forgot about one component of your total daily energy expenditure because there's four and that's what you alluded to that is your exercise activity thermogenesis so if you're able to take that increase in glycogen storage and you're able to be able to really transfer that into um, having more conducive more intense and more progressive training sessions in the days that precede that you're getting better pumps in the gym better nutrient delivery all these things There are so many benefits from them especially if you stay active within the process
0: Yeah, totally. And it's interesting, Brandon, because you've mentioned a couple of times now about the moderation, the idea of moderation. And you've worked with several hundred, if not thousands of clients over the last 10 years. Do you think everyone is capable of moderation?
1: No to be completely frank with you. And so I think that um, there's some, um, there's a concept by Gretchen Rubin, I believe, and we have moderators and we have abstainers. And so I do think that there are people that fall into that category. And so really within that, I think as a coach, this, you know, when it comes to coaching, I always say that it goes far beyond the X's and O's of calories and macros with the nutrition and sets and reps in the gym. And what I mean by that is you have to get to know the client's personality type, their preferences, their abilities, their constraints. And also one big thing that I look At every single client that I work with, I'm always trying to, I kind of work like a detective. I'm sure you can relate to that feeling. You're trying to look for the blind spots that they have because none of us, ourselves included as nutritional professionals can be a hundred percent objective with, with ourselves. And so that's where it really helps to have someone in your corner. So one thing I look for, or one category that I look for within the clientele that I work with is for what I refer to as bottlenecks or anchors. So think about what a bottleneck is or an anchor, it's something holding you back. So what could that be? That could be that someone has this dichotomous relationship with food or a poor relationship with food where it's either they're nailing things to a T it's a hundred percent, they're aiming for perfection, or they're literally off the beaten path. And it's like, They had the F, you know, what the F mentality were one little mistake. They essentially go down, you know, an entire, like a snowball effect. And so I kind of try to analogize it to, if you got a flat, uh, flat, uh, tire on your car, would you slash the rest of your three tires? No, you would get a spare. You would make do with what you have. And so I think everyone needs to, I would encourage people to look towards a path of moderation, but I will say that not everyone can do that. And I'm not saying that they can't do it in every aspect. I'm saying in certain aspects. So for instance, I'll give you an example. There's a lot of debate in the literature about uh, not only food addiction, but also about cravings. And if you actually look into literature on cravings, a lot of the, the psychologists and the researchers behind this will say the best method to eliminate a craving is actually, they call it starve a craving. They actually put this in the literature to starve your cravings. So some individuals, I think they would do best by eliminating or, for instance, for a period of time going without that. So abstaining from exposing themselves to what would be considered a trigger food, something that is causing them to overeat. It's in their environment. So that could be taking it out of your household. Or if you have family, friends, or you live with loved ones, put it in the back of a cabinet, put it in the the back of the refrigerator, put some effort barriers within your way from you just effortlessly grabbing at this and eating it. And so there are some people like that. And then there are other incredible individuals i have a a good friend and esteemed colleague uh, alan aragon who he can literally have a piece of chocolate every single night and he's obviously he's known as the flexible dieting guy so he's someone that has really he's really well versed in this literature but that's his personality type and i've been out to dinner with him before and he can literally have little something of indulgent and just put it away and i have the utmost respect for that but i'll tell you from a competitive aspect i could not do that when i was competing I, i competed 15 times in physique competitions over the years and if i had one thing it was we're getting the whole, I'm eating the whole thing. So I know that about myself. And I also have seen that with clients. So I think that from a coaching perspective, we really have to take an individualized approach and really counsel our clients on that and and say, listen, we can try this out. We can try to include say a discretionary calorie budget. So 200 calories per day, where you spend that, you, you allocate that part of your budget towards any foods that you, you, fancy, essentially. Or if you see that that 200 calorie discretionary budget becomes 2000 calories because they're unable time and time again to moderate it, that's where we may have to take that out of the plant, focus really more on whole foods, really building a nutrient dense diet, eliminating cravings, getting them back to energy balance, really focusing on fueling themselves adequately. And then we could see if we can reintegrate that into an approach where they're now in a better place, both physiologically and psychologically.
0: Yeah, no, I really love that. And I'm absolutely an Alan Aragon. I can easily have a square of chocolate and I'm like, sweet, I'm done. And it can drive some people nuts. But I do wonder how much of that is a learned behavior as well. like Because I've been in – I mean – I've probably been obsessed with nutrition since I was like twelve. You know, so that's a good old like almost thirty-five years of thinking about this stuff. And so I wonder and I don't think I've always been like that. I know in my teenage years I was like a chubby teenager and and I was always dieting with my mum and then we would like go on binges and stuff like that was almost part of our loving mother daughter relationship. And, And 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 I love my mother and I absolutely don't blame her for that. It's just what you did back then. But I'm I think that over time because the more I sort of understood, I guess, myself, and I also had the benefit of, I say benefit, people are going to go, what is she talking about? But Weight Watchers actually was really great at allowing me to understand the power of volume in food and those low energy dense foods. I don't think that Weight Watchers gets enough kudos for that. Um, I'm certainly, um, I, I I don't like it particularly endorse the entire program but there are definitely principles which I um which I got a lot from and I think that just over time you just learn stuff and learn how you feel when you do sort of go on a bender and and you do have that sort of all or nothing approach where when you're all in and then at the end of it you just feel like terrible I think over the years I've learned that that's not it doesn't make me feel good but I do think as well Brandon that um I, have, I definitely have that restrictive um, personality type as well. So for someone like me, and a lot of my colleagues actually, and I, I read a study once saying that dietitians and nutritionists were very good at restriction compared to the general population. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think that, that, that that's something which um, some people have that personality type where they're able to enjoy just a small amount, whereas others just you know, really struggle
1: Absolutely. And I think that a lot of times people don't realize how we come to the profession we're at. So I'll tell you personally, um, how I got into nutrition was essentially, um, at a necessity to be honest with you. And so it was, it was really in an effort. Like I have such a amount of respect and love for nutrition, but it really came from a point of trying to restore my health and and my performance because, um, I essentially, you know, I was a competitive athlete growing up. I was very, um, active as, as a young individual and I started getting into weight controlled sports. So I competed in martial arts and then I also competed in indoor and outdoor track and cross country. So, all these sorts, if you really think about the commonality between them, they all have a weight control aspect where at that time, at least, you know, lighter was seen as being better. You're trying to increase, your, you know, better your power to weight ratio. And so I was really coached in a method where people were the coaches that I had and the influences around me really stressed the need to watch my my weight. And so even, you know, we're talking middle school, I was already being told about calories and food intake. And I started tracking the food that I was eating. And now mind you, it was in a a calorie uh, counting um, journal because we didn't have any of these trackers. And so that was a great, um, you know, that was a great way to learn about nutrition. But to be honest with you, I uh, started developing the symptoms of what's now known as relative energy deficiency. However, the thing is that this was the early 2000s so the concept hadn't even been recognized because the actual concept of relative uh, relative energy deficiency in sport wasn't termed until the olympic uh, the international olympic committee essentially put out a consensus statement on 2014 so i'm about 10 years earlier than this so they didn't understand what was going on with me but i basically was in a state of chronic low energy availability where i was exercising for hours a day we're talking three to four hours a day at a minimum and then under myself purposely to keep my weight down and so i think that what you're speaking about like you know, some of the things that you've learned, the same thing can be said about me. So I know the background that I had, and I think that I touch on a lot of topics, whether it be metabolic adaptation or fueling yourself, you know, effectively or energy flux. And it's because I've seen the negative ramifications of being in an underfueled state. So it's really funny how things we, even within our childhood, they have lasting impressions on us. Experiences we had with our parents, with coaches, with our athletics growing up. And this shapes the way that we, um, you know, work with our clients as well as some of the type the, the things we go into from an educational perspective, the things we learn about, or even the concepts that we cover on podcasts or that we try to educate and warn other people about. And so it's it's really interesting to hear that from you because I see that within my own life, that a lot of times I'm speaking with clients and trying to help them avoid many of the mistakes I made previously so that they don't have to go through the same repercussions and consequences that I unknowingly went through, especially this is 20 plus years ago. So keep in mind that the accessible information that we have today, coaching wasn't even, you know, a thing. It wasn't even an industry. So I didn't have the guidance, you know, uh, professionally that we had the ability. I didn't have the information as well that we have the ability to access now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, your, your, your coaching is such a great platform for helping clients avoid some of the mistakes that you made. And you just sort of mentioned a couple of them. Brandon, what are some of the common things that you see, common mistakes that you see your clients make like that, that you feel like that are easily avoided and, and what sort of tactics do you take with your clients?
1: Yeah. So I think honestly, when it comes down to it, I work with such a wide demographic of individuals that I'm seeing a lot of different mistakes, but I think really when it comes down to it, one of, if, if I'm talking about common mistakes that I'm seeing in terms of, the vast majority of people that come to me. So I've worked with everyone from IFBB pros on the Olympia level stage to your lifestyle clients. So I have Lifestyle Lisa and Gen Pop Jim, And then I have guys that like literally do this as a profession. And so a couple of like several common mistakes that I notice with many of the people that contact me is I think the number one mistake would be when people come to like, they're talking about nutrition, they're focusing on that. And what ends up happening is they get stuck in a certain way of doing things. They become very, they essentially get in their own way and they're scared of making changes and the vast majority of people are fearful of changes but you have to realize that and we both know this but many people don't realize that nothing in life will change or improve unless you're willing to make changes yourself so i find that many get emotionally attached to a specific style of eating or to a specific dietary approach and they'll follow it and continue to do so even if it isn't working for them because we are creatures of comfort essentially. And so if you get comfortable with something or you feel like you belong to a group or to a camp, you fear losing that connection or feeling of community if they try something new. So one thing I often try to you know, remind my clients of is the fact that if they were to continue you know be, you know becoming you know prior to coming to me they were doing something repeatedly for years and it wasn't working and if it didn't work multiple times for them why would you continue doing it if that approach isn't yielding the results and progress they're looking for another thing and i'll say this from the context we were just speaking about relative energy efficiency another huge common mistake that i find with many people is they're constantly engaging in chronic dieting cycles. So if we actually look at the research on this, research finds that around 42% of males and up to 61% of females report going on a diet each and every year in an attempt to lose weight. So around half of adults are in a deficit at some point in the year and in the population i work with, i find that many have a history of chronic dieting where they end up swinging from extreme to extreme and jump from diet to diet, which results in this like vicious cycle where they lose weight by over restricting themselves and cutting Calories literally as aggressively as they can, only to regain that weight after, as a result of that. And then what ends up happening is the cycle restarts because now they've regained the weight that they lost and they feel the need to go right back into a deficit to lose the weight that they've regained. So what I try to get across to my clients that are in this position is that we need to be more strategic and periodize in our approach to nutrition, where we pick our spots and we diet in a more intelligent manner. So they'll be able to lose fat and keep it off. And then we're able to spend the vast majority of the year outside of a deficit so they can recover metabolically from the diet and focused on building lean mass, which is what's going to significantly improve their body composition. Because if you just continue to try to stay in a diet and a deficit year round, you're not going to attain that lean muscular physique that so many people come to us for because you're not dedicating and allocating long periods of time, focus on building that muscle tissue and muscle is a very slow process. So if you're constantly in a deficit, you're never giving yourself, you know, you're, you're always in this restriction-based mindset. Really what I try to uh, get across to clientele is let's focus on shifting that paradigm and going into an abundance-based mindset. What can we add to your program? What things can we build upon? What other aspects can we focus on besides trying? to become a smaller, lighter version of yourself.
0: Yeah, and I really like what you said about that restriction mindset because it almost is a separate uh, entity, if you like, from what's actually happening on the plate because someone can be in a restrictive mindset yet still be overeating and still be doing the Monday to Thursday diet yet doing the Friday to Sunday, you know, sort of blowout without even really realizing it. And if they shift how they're feeling about it, they can really take advantage of um uh, well, they can take advantage of having that abundance mindset, so they do eat more on cer- in certain periods, and I mentioned the the week sort of calorie cycle, but i 'm even thinking you know three weeks in a deficit, one week maybe at maintenance or whatever, but the effect is a positive one rather than having that sort of not only physical Detrimental effect of increased fat gain, but the way that they feel about it is is negative as well, and that to me is such an important piece of it.
1: No, absolutely. I think uh, what I refer to that as is the weekday dieter. So a lot of people they'll, yeah. they'll diet Monday through Friday when things are hectic, or they're they're able to really like reel things in, and they're kind of just. Um, just getting by essentially in terms of their energy needs, but also their ability, they're, they're white knuckling it essentially. And then the weekend comes and they have more time or they have social engagements, they have family and friends around, and then it's like all bets are off. So, what ends up happening, there's both physiological ramifications of that and psychological ramifications. So, hear me out on this. Physiologically, if you're in a deficit most of the week and you're especially if you're under eating, so you're in the state of low energy availability, you are down regulating all your physiological systems. So, we're seeing decreases in leptin, we're seeing decreases in resting metabolic rate decreases in energy expenditure, especially from the neat component. Cause you're a little bit more sluggish. Your subconscious activity is going down. So Monday through Friday, you're in this restriction based mindset, both you know, internally, in terms of the way that you're approaching food, the way that you're approaching fueling yourself, but also in terms of your physiology, you are going, you're getting diet-induced metabolic adaptations. However, what ends up happening is you're essentially slowing down all components of your your uh, total daily energy expenditure Monday through Friday. Then you overeat on the weekend. You don't just go back to maintenance like we would do in a refeed fashion or in a diet break fashion. You go above maintenance. You're having hyperpalatable foods, pizza, beer, wings alcohol, things of that sort. And now you're noticing, and these are the individuals that come to me and say, I have one free meal or one cheat meal and it sticks to me, or I have a cheat day and I can't get the weight off and I diet the rest of the week. And it's like, yes, you've down-regulated yourself physiologically, but also you're in a restriction-based mindset most of the week. And so now you feel like you're dieting so much. You're constantly in this chronic dieting cycle because yes, the vast majority of the week, five out of seven days. So whatever that comes out to 80 plus percent of the week, you're in a deficit. However, what ends up happening is you're overeating so much on the weekends that it's actually undoing that deficit. However, you're both physiologically downregulated and also mentally you feel restricted as well as feel extremely frustrated because one thing is to go into an energy deficit, which is a form of energy restriction. It is there is you know cognitive restraint that's involved in it. However you're putting undue stress on yourself because now you're not even getting a benefit for the work that you're putting in, for the restriction you're putting in. And you're creating this uh, really dichotomous uh, you know, seesaw, essentially, where you're going from under eating, under yourself, having really poor training sessions to overeating yourself with nutrient devoid foods, essentially. And you're not even getting the performance benefits, the body composition benefits from a fat loss perspective, as well as from if we were to utilize, say, like an undulating calorie cycle, or we were to utilize a 5-2 diet in terms of five days in a deficit, two days at maintenance. And Really, refeeding with carbohydrates, kind of in like in the study that was done by Bill Campbell in 2020, where they're getting you know increases in resting metabolic rate, they had better um, uh, maintenance of their dry fat-free mass. They saw a lot of physiological benefits, and also they saw hunger dissipated, and they were able to adhere to the diet in, in a really good fashion. So you're not getting the benefits, but you're getting all the drawbacks, and that's really where I try to speak with clients. Let's pick our spots and really be strategic with how we approach you know fat loss, especially.
0: Yeah. And is this where your concept of ener- energy flux sort of comes in with you when you're working with your clients, Brandon? So, or is this, and then like, can you talk me through energy flux? Cause yeah, I've absolutely. heard you talk about it a number of times and I think it's such a great concept.
1: Yeah. So, Energy flux, that actually came from the fact that I was seeing such down regulations and energy expenditure. And I was noticing that people weren't hitting the rate of loss targets. And this was myself as well. So in 2015, I started noticing, I started utilizing a step tracker. So a Fitbit, it was like generation one Fitbit. And I started noticing that like I would track it in the off season. And then I was, you know couple, maybe a month into a contest prep. And I noticed that my steps fell precipitously and it was getting harder for me to, you know, actually make fat loss progress. And this is before I was hearing anyone really talk about me and the importance of it. And so when I really got keyed up on the research on that. I started utilizing step tracking with clients and then it kind of snowballed into this energy flux concept, but really to, I'll give you an introduction to energy flux, but actually the term didn't come out until 2018. So I was already utilizing a less refined method of this. So essentially the concept of energy flux refers to our state of energy turnover in the body. So this is the relationship between the amount of energy we consume and how much energy we expend through all forms of physical activity, including both our intentional exercise and then our daily movement. And I found that having clients take a high-flux approach, which is how I refer to it, where I have clients eat more and move more is a really effective method, both during fat loss phases to get them into an effective deficit, as well as to help with adherence and being able to sustain a diet because they're eating more, they're getting very well fueled and things of that sort, but also it's extremely beneficial and helpful during a post-diet maintenance phase. And really the importance and and why I've utilized this and found benefit to it during a fat loss phase is because maintaining high levels of energy, of physical activity, essentially during a diet can help to make up for the reductions in energy expenditure that come from decreases in need during a diet as reductions in need. A lot of people don't realize how considerable they are. So we actually see in the literature, you look in um, research by Rosenbaum and Leibel, which which are prominent research. Researchers in this field. Decreases in NEAT can account for up to 85 to 90 percent of the decreases in the calories we burn as a result of diet induced metabolic adaptations. And just to be able to provide, like your audience, I know they're, they're very science based, like I'll give you guys a little bit of a conceptual model and, and some evidence behind this uh, of just how significant of a decrease in calorie burn decreases in meat can contribute to. We can look at a study by Rosenbaum. So, Rosenbaum and colleagues did a, a study in 2008 where they looked at how much of a reduction in total daily energy expenditure dieters who had lost at least. 10% of their body weight sustained and saw a 500 calorie reduction in the amount of calories they were burning per day. So that was on the totality. And then what they did was they analyzed and broke down this metabolic adaptation into multiple components to see what aspect of total daily energy expenditure were impacted the most from weight loss. And so they found that those that had lost 10% of their body weight saw about 100%. Calorie reduction, resting metabolic rate. So that's you know about twenty percent. However, when they analyzed the rest of the components that contributed to this large degree of decreased calorie expenditure, they found that these dieters' physical activity energy expenditure, so NEAT, had decreased by around four hundred calories per day. And the vast majority of research that we have on this topic does find that between eighty-five to ninety percent of those downregulations in energy expenditure that we experience from dieting comes from decreases in NEET. And so. We have to realize that when you're in a fat loss phase and you're in a deficit, you're going to subconsciously downregulate your activity levels and there's going to be things that you don't even notice. You're going to sit more. You're going to slouch more. You're going to compensate more. You might, you know, I even noticed that I blink slower. Like there's a video of me. I, I did a presentation at bodybuilding.com years ago and I was a week um, removed from a contest prep, but I was still in prep. And so, um, I just finished a contest. I was week after, and I still had a couple more contests to go. And I remember the VP of my company, he's not familiar with, with, um, you know, contest prep or anything of that sort. And so when I was done with the presentation, he was like, is everything all right? And he was asking a question. He was generally concerned. And, um, I was like, yeah, Dan, everything's perfect. Like, didn't I do well? And he's like, no, you you spoke well, but you were speaking so slow. You were blinking (laughs) so slow and you weren't speaking with your hands. And if anyone has ever seen me on YouTube or whatever, I I, I'm from an Italian background from New York. Like we speak with our hands. I'm extremely lively. I speak really fast. This is something from the Northeast. And so he was, he was taken aback by that. And that's just an example of how subconsciously things can downregulate as a result of being in an energy deficit. So this is where increasing energy flux through increasing movement via knee or essentially you know tracking steps can be so beneficial because it can allow us to diet on a higher amount of calories and offset some of the decreases in energy expenditure and also by increasing so essentially my concept is eat more move more And by doing so, we can maintain better training performance, better muscle maintenance because you're feeding yourself more, you're having more carbohydrate availability, um, you're going to have more peri-workout nutrition. That's something I I specifically focus on. And then also, we're going to improve biofeedback, which is one area that is detrimentally impacted during a deficit, especially if you try to take what I would consider a low-flux approach, where you really try to lowball your calories, really try to restrict as much as you can, really try to slash your calories, and lose weight as quickly as possible. And what we have to realize, there's a big difference between weight loss and quality weight loss which really quality weight loss alludes to fat loss we're trying to maintain as much muscle tissue as possible and lose as much body fat as possible whereas weight loss purely focusing on the scale that's oftentimes a combination of some fat loss yes but also some lean body mass loss some glycogen loss and things of that sort
0: yeah now are you familiar with um dr jade Teter?
1: i, I i'm familiar with the name i don't know if i've, I've seen all his stuff though
0: yeah, he's like he's amazing. He's a naturopathic doctor, and his he talks about metabolic toggles, which is really similar to what you're talking about. So we have these phases of eating and exercise, essentially, where you do. There are you know times where you eat more and you exercise less, and that might be Christmas, for example. You do nothing and you like you know chowing down, but then you've got your eat more, exercise more, which is essentially your sort of high energy flex flux. And he talks about how the the metabolism, we often say that we, you know, people are like, oh, I wish my metabolism was faster um, or I've got the slow metabolism. And he's like, you don't necessarily want a fast metabolism. You want an adaptive and a responsive metabolism. Like his language is very similar to yours, Brandon. You've got a lot of um, sort of synergies with your information. Both of it. Awesome. I'll
1: definitely have to check his stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds like uh, kindred spirits to say the least.
0: Then with regards, Brandon, to when, to the process that people have with you like you mentioned sort of a higher calorie intake with a higher sort of um uh uh, movement um within their day like do Mm -hmm. you approach fat loss for your male clients the same as you do your female like do you see any delineation there or is it an individual sort of by individual basis with you?
1: So off the bat, I have to say that although sex is a consideration in terms of the way I would approach fat loss, it's not like I'm going to look at a client and say... You know, in the general population, to be like, you know, Gem Pop Jim over here is a man, so I'm going to put him on a male fat loss plan. And then Lifestyle Lisa over here is a female, so I'm going to put her on a female fat loss plan. So I think really when it comes down to it, coaching needs to be more nuanced and individualized and need to consider many other aspects besides just a person's sex. However, if I was going to pin down a major difference in how I approach fat loss for females and how I approach fat loss for males, it would be the rate of loss and the size of the deficit that I utilize with each sex, where I'll utilize a lower rate of loss target and smaller net deficit with females than I do males. So with females, I'm generally going to target a moderate weekly rate of loss target between 0.25% 0.25% and 1% body weight uh, per week. Whereas with males, it's generally just going to be a touch higher. So it's going to be 0.5 to 1% rate of loss target on a weekly basis. And I also tend to take what I refer to as a dynamic approach to the rate of fat loss target. So what I've personally found to work best for females and as well as males, but I'll speak really in the context of females is during a fat loss phase, I'll start at the, I'll sort a diet out at the higher end of that 0.25 to 1% rate of loss target, because let's think about where someone is physically, physiologically, and, and mentally at the start of a fat loss phase. Their body fat is higher and there's more body weight and body fat to lose. The likelihood of muscle loss is low because they've been outside of a deficit. They've been primed and are ready to you know, diet because I put them through what I call a pre-diet primer phase to really get everything firing on all cylinders, essentially had them in a good state physically as well as mentally, and their motivation is really high. So at the start of a fat loss phase, I'll air closer to that 1% rate of loss target, which allows us to get some good progress right off the bat and then what I'll do is I'll slow things down in terms of our rate of loss on a weekly basis. As they get leaner, they get hungrier, and it's more difficult for them to hit a higher end of that rate of loss target. And I also believe that the sex-specific differences in body size and total daily energy expenditure need to be considered when creating an actual calorie deficit, which is why I don't believe that we should t- use the same approach to creating a deficit with all clients, because just like I wouldn't use the same training volume or frequency or the same cardio duration or intensity with every single one of my clients, all of the clients that I work with, they don't have the same calorie budgets to deduct from when trying to create that deficit to elicit effective fat loss. So my male av- you know, my average male client, who's an advanced trainee, usually will have a maintenance calorie intake of around 3,500. And even on the low end, they're generally around 3,000 calories yet. I have many females whose maintenance calories are around 2000 calories or less. So if I were to put all my clients on the same like fitness industry standard, 500 calorie deficit, it may sound the same on paper. And and really when people hear that, they're like, you know, in a research study, they standardize things. It's everyone at the same percent deficit or the same calorie deficit. And I understand, we both understand why they do that because things have to be standardized within a research study. But in the real world, we really have to, there's context to be taken into consideration and on an app, you know, that's the same on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis, there's a world of a difference. Difference between those two deficits between individuals. So, for my male client with a maintenance calories of thirty five hundred, a five hundred calorie deficit is a fourteen percent deficit. However, for my ma- my female client with a maintenance calorie intake of two thousand calories, that same five hundred calorie deficit automatically becomes a twenty five percent calorie deficit. So, it's much more extreme for her. So, you know, and also another thing that I, I often take into consideration, I do like to speak to, is the fact that I work with a lot of women who have a you know a history of chronic dieting or have lost their menstrual cycle from under fueling themselves and being in a prolonged state of low energy availability. So their means intake is usually around 1,500 to 1,600 calories a day now. So that same 500 calorie deficit, if I was to apply it to them, Is going to be over a 30% calorie deficit for these women, which is far more aggressive at a deficit. That's going to leave them more predisposed towards having trouble adhering to it, not having enough fuel and energy to train and also to recover, and may leave them more predisposed towards experiencing muscle loss and exacerbate metabolic adaptations, as well as potentially experiencing more menstrual cycle disruptions early on in the dieting phase, which is why I really believe the deficit in calorie reduction needs to be individualized and scaled to the client we're working with, with especially between sexes. So The biggest difference between how I diet a male and a female for fat loss is I'm going to utilize a smaller absolute deficit with my female clients, and so that they have a better ability to adhere and maintain that deficit as really when it comes down to it, it, you could have the perfect plan and paper and you could put every one of your clients on the same deficit, but really when it comes down to it, the most important factors are consistency and adherence because that's what's going to determine their ability to lose fat in an effective manner. So that's really when I look at sex specific differences, that's really what I'm focusing on most. Let's cater this rate of loss you know, obviously besides the, the dietary components of, you know, I'm going to make sure that this is more in line with someone's preferences and things of that sort. But when I look specifically at sex, it's like, that's where I think a lot of people are missing the mark because a lot of times I feel within fitness and especially within the the sector that I'm in, a lot of people are trying to sell a simple story because people want simple answers. They have a question and they want you to sell them, you know, this is the one way to do things. This is the best way to lose fat. And it's like, yes, there are many methods and many are effective. However, it needs to be catered and individualized to that person. And if you're telling every single person that they need to induce a 500 calorie deficit to lose one pound per week, that's not going to be applicable to everyone.
0: You mm, know, completely. And I really like how you talked about the primer um, period with your clients to sort of almost prepare them for a fat loss phase. What are some of the things that you think about there, Brandon, which um, our listeners can sort of take away for themselves and sort of think about before they sort of embark in fat loss in the new year?
1: Yeah, so really when it comes down to it, I think that most people jump into a diet before they're ready to. And I think that a lot of times when it comes down to it, um, They have the goal of fat loss, but they don't realize that they aren't in the right place physically or mentally to go right into a deficit. So what I do with most of my clients when we first start working together is I like to have them start off by entering what I refer to as a pre-diet primer phase to set them up for more effective fat loss following that primer phase. So during the primer phase, my goal is to set a client up for more effective fat loss in the future by using that initial time working together as a sort of like preparatory period where I aim to improve and optimize their physiology. And their psychology, and work on their approach to nutrition and training, as well as their habits, their behaviors, and lifestyle as a whole, so that they can respond better and can lose fat more effectively once we do enter an energy deficit. And I found that this, I found this to be like a really effective method as many individuals aren't in the right state, both physically and mentally to start a fat loss phase. And they end up rushing into it, which leads to generally like one of two situations. We have those who go into a deficit, but they can't adhere to it. And it results in them falling off the diet and just spinning their wheels. So they continue trying they continue getting on a diet, getting off a diet, getting on a diet, getting off a diet. Or we have those rare individuals that they're able to succeed in terms of the diet phase. So what they do is they white knuckle their way through the diet, but as soon as it's over, they end up gaining all the weight that they lost back and are right back where they started. And so really what I found is this pre diet primer phase helps me make sure a client is in the right state, both physically and mentally before we enter a deficit, which increases their likelihood of succeeding both in the fat loss phase itself. And then they're better able to maintain the results after, because we've already cemented a lot of the positive habits and behaviors prior to going to the fat loss phase itself. So then those same habits and behaviors are able to serve them once we exit the diet and get them back to eating at maintenance. And then, so, so I'm not going to ever put someone right into a deficit Nine out of 10 people that come to me, they're just they're not ready. In, in one capacity, there are anchors and bottlenecks that I'm seeing within their intake form, within our consultation. But then once someone is in a better state in both terms of their training, their movement, their eating habits and behaviors, they're sleeping well, they're managing stress effectively, then I'm going to transition them into a fat loss phase. But one of my main focuses when do, getting them into a deficit is to create a calorie deficit, not a nutrient deficit. Because another component and another mistake that I find many do is they un, unintentionally you know, get into a deficit and they diet far too aggressively in terms of their approach to fat loss. So that could either just put them into a bad state physiologically. So they're incurring adaptations quicker, or it really leads to a lack of adherence where they're either completely off the diet in and of itself, or they're slipping up quite frequently, which is only causing them to find, you know, essentially encounter more uh, plateaus and more uh, stalls within the process, which is frustrating. And it's, it's causing undue mental, you know, burden, Which they could easily have, we could have easily worked around if we had given ourselves a little bit of time on the front end of us working together, where we really dialed in their habits, their behaviors, and their lifestyle design, so that when they do go into a deficit, we make that period of fat loss the most effective period that they could have.
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And Brandon, I know that you're not a big fan of those calorie counters out there for establishing (laughs) sort of maintenance and, and the rest of it. And, you know, personally speaking, I've used them with some success, but a lot of the time, actually, we learn a lot more when my clients start tracking their calories and we sort of establish what's going on there rather than that they completely follow what come what is spat, spat out of a sort of calculator. So how do you approach that then?
1: Absolutely. So um, I always say that coaches are not calculators. Uh, there are many software that we can utilize online. I, I really think that we have to utilize the knowledge and education that we have to really set our clients up for success. So I, I do take a little bit more of an extended approach and I've refined this over the years. So for instance, I used to, you always want to, or I personally always want to establish a client's maintenance calories before, because what I I generally notice is that a lot of people, they have the intention right off the bat of working with a coach. They want to go right into a deficit. Well, what happens if I don't know your maintenance calorie intake? The average person that comes to me, they do not know their maintenance calorie intake. And oftentimes they've already been under fueling themselves or overeating. So they're in one end of this extreme, where they're over consuming and gaining weight, or they're under fueling themselves and could just be down regulated and, and actually have still persistent metabolic adaptations due to the fact that they've never gotten back to energy balance. So what I like to do during that primer phase is not only find their maintenance, but establish a higher maintenance. Because essentially what I'm trying to do is get them to be able to maintain their current body composition on as many calories as possible. So we have more of a budget to play with in terms of when we go into a deficit. So what I like to utilize and what you're alluding to is I, I've done a full series of podcasts on why we shouldn't utilize calorie calculators from a coaching perspective. And what I mean by that is generally we see uh misestimation. So there are BMR calculators. And then when we tack on the physical activity uh, levels onto them, they, the multiplier, we generally see between a four to 700 calorie um, uh, error margin on them. So that's, yeah. that's quite substantial, especially if someone has like a low maintenance calorie intake. And so we could be, Pretty fairly off the mark. If, if a calorie calculator tells you that you are your maintenance calorie is twenty five hundred calories, but they're really three thousand, and or vice versa, say they say they're uh, three thousand, but it's really twenty five hundred, and you establish a five hundred calorie deficit thinking that your maintenance is three thousand. Now you're at maintenance calories, but you think you're in a deficit. So now you're back into this mental restriction where you think that you're dieting, and that's what a lot of people come to me. They say, you know, I've been in a deficit, I've eaten a deficit, but I haven't lost any weight. Well, then you you haven't been in a deficit, especially if you did it for a prolonged period of time. If you went three, four, five weeks and you didn't lose any weight, you're still at maintenance from a eucaloric perspective. And so what I like to do is I like to have a period of time where we're tracking different metrics essentially. So I like to keep things essentially um, clamped where they're eating the same amount every day. They're tracking it so I can get a, an average throughout the week. And we're also tracking their body weight on a daily basis to get a rolling average or you know an average for the week. And also their activity levels. So say, for instance, someone comes to me and they're doing 7,000 steps per day. They have a baseline diet that they're following and they're weighing in every single day. What I'll do is I'll have them send me over you know, a week's worth. I used to do it differently. I used to have them track over two weeks initially, and I would like to get that two-week average. Now I've actually scaled that back to four days or less. And the reason for that is because I actually... I had to disprove my own my own theory. Generally I like two weeks and I noticed that that was a, a big cognitive burden for a lot of people because a lot of clients coming to me, they're not proficient trackers and they just wanted to get. Co- started the coaching process. And essentially what I'm telling them is I need you to go two more weeks and then I'll, we'll start working together. So it really became a barrier of entry essentially. But I did get some, um, I did look into some literature on this and we find that food records start to become highly inaccurate over three to four days. Yeah. And so what I was doing, I had, I had really curtailed two weeks down to one week. And when I saw that literature, I said, all right, I got to pull this back. So what I like to do is I like to get a training day diet and off day diet and one of their weekdays oh. or weekends rather. Yeah. And so I'll take that. I'll utilize the average. And also I want them tracking, you know, their body weight as well as their activity levels. And I'm, I'm going to get an average of that. And then I'm going to set a baseline diet at that average intake of what should maintain their uh, state of energy balance. And then over the first one to two weeks of a primer phase, I'm seeing... their their deviations in body weight, as well as their activity levels. And I'm trying to keep everything clamped to be able to establish a maintenance calorie intake. And what i actually like to do during a primer phase is to walk their calories up, essentially, to get them to the highest level in which they can maintain a good level of body composition and are able to sufficiently fuel themselves. So a lot of people are coming to me, they're pretty much eating like nutrient-devoid diets, so I'm trying to replete micronutrients. I'm trying to get them more of a whole food matrix, really create a nutrient-dense diet of 90% of whole foods. And going to improve upon many other aspects. So I'm improving their satiety, their biofeedback, their sleep, all these other things that could be decreasing and diminishing their calorie expenditure. And so within that, I'm able to build up their calorie intake and keep them at maintenance. So, but it's a higher, it's essentially a buffer that we've made for them where they're able to maintain their weight on a higher amount of calories than they previously thought. And that gives us more of like essentially more tools to play with once we do go into a deficit.
0: Yeah, no, that's really great. And then Brandon, when you're working with clients, I mean a lot of sort of people reach this point where they have a bit of a plateau. And and it's a true plateau. It's not just this psychological I'm not losing weight and then they haven't clocked that they're actually, you know, eating more and and sort of all the the bites and the sort of licks and the, you know, things that they're eating are actually contributing to increased calories. How do you work through with your clients a weight loss stall? Like what are some of the common reasons and how would you tackle it?
1: Absolutely. So when it comes to weight loss stalls, there, there are many components that, that could cause this essentially. So as you alluded to, a lot, a lot of times it is calorie inaccuracies in terms of tracking inaccuracies. So we're forgetting about the bites, the licks, the tastes, the sips, all these different things that are, are adding up in terms of calorie uh, intake, which a lot of people just overlook. That could be snacking behaviors. That could be anything outside of a meal or even just, you know obviously memory recall isn't great, but a lot of people wait till the end of the day to track instead of tracking meal by meal or tracking in advance. And so these are little errors that we could really improve upon. So I really find that really focusing on educating clients on tracking, I've done many podcasts on this, but I have a full tracking guide that I give clients to really walk them through the process, make sure that we're Improving precision because you can never be 100% accurate. There's the FDA guidelines, at least in the States, which allow for a 20% margin of error on um, prepackaged food items. However, we can be precise and we can be consistent. If you're doing that on a day to day basis, I can make adjustments to that diet based off of what you're doing day in and day out that are going to lead to greater weight loss. So, really, when it comes to a stall, we have to realize that weight loss is never linear. So, it's not going to continually go down. So, we have to educate clients on that, give them or help them have realistic expectations and realize that there are going to be stalls along the process however if i see that a client is stalled for more than two to three weeks meaning their weight has not budged a a, like even you know a quarter pound or whatever it may be that's where we're going to look into underlying factors so a lot of times i will do an energy audit which is essentially where i have them track on a daily basis even take pictures of their meals if it's someone that i I really need to uh, i notice that they have um just habits which could lead them to overeating and just mindlessly eating. And so I'm trying to track them or trying to audit them on that. But there's other reasons there could be a you know sleep issues. There could be stress issues. I think the number one that I would say is is honestly stress, but a lot of times we're seeing increases in stress, which are causing them to not see the the fat loss that we would expect based off the energy deficit they're having. So this is where we would lead into like the whoosh effect essentially. And this is something that many have experienced, but might not be familiar with. So essentially when we refer to the whoosh effect, this is basically a situation in a fat loss phase and in a calorie deficit where you're in a deficit, you're truly in a deficit. You are dieting you hard and you're consistent with your plan. You're adherent, but you're not seeing a decrease in your scale weight for a period of time, which can last anywhere between a few days to up to a couple weeks. So now it looks like you're completely stalled out. And although it can make this seem as though you're stalled out, uh, what the actual whoosh effect refers to is this phenomenon where after several days or weeks of seeing a stall in your scale weight, you wake up and you see a large drop or a whoosh down in your scale weight that you hadn't seen in the days prior. And this stalling in scale weight is usually caused by high levels of unmanaged stress, which can lead to an increase in cortisol. And when cortisol gets chronically elevated, it binds to specific receptors, which are made for water-retensive hormones like aldosterone, which is why you know, stress essentially increases water retention, which will increase your scale weight and it can make it appear on the scale. Like you've made no progress throughout you know, a whole week of being consistent on your diet. However, what I often see is that when I'm able to help, and, and this is where it comes down to like coaching needs to go beyond the X's and O's, it can't just be nutrition and, and, and training. Like we have to talk lifestyle factors. We have to talk stress management. We have to talk sleep optimization, all these other things, because what I've noticed, and this is kind of how I came to really looking into this concept and really, um, realizing that this is often a cause of plateaus within fat loss, um, besides metabolic adaptation. If we went into there, obviously there are down regulations in energy expenditure that could cause a plateau in weight loss, but generally, if someone is in an effective deficit, we're not going to see such a drastic decrease in energy expenditure from one week to another, where their steps are stayed extreme, uh, you know, extremely consistent, where their training is is going the exact same way, they're still progressive with their training, where it's going to drop off by several hundred calories. However, what a lot of people don't realize is that stress can cause increases in water retention that causes exhale to increase a couple pounds. So you could have lost a pound or two within the last two weeks. However, the increase in water retention from stress is actually hiding and masking your ability to see that fat loss. And what I've, I've found very interesting is over the years, there's been many times where I've suspected this and I haven't said anything to a client. You know, I'm, I'm talking to them about stress and you know, I'm, I'm really trying to get across the importance of this. And what I'll do is I'll have them integrate some stress management techniques, maybe have a spa night, maybe do some meditation. Or a lot of times what I'll actually do is because realize that as coaches, we can only control certain aspects of our clients' lives and we can only help them in certain aspects. So for instance, if a client has a really hectic uh, job or has children at home, you know, there are stressors that we're never going to be able able to eliminate for them. However, we can help manage the other aspects. So that could be putting them into a load to lower, you know, essentially their Alice, Static load, or another thing that I found very effective is to integrate a refeed day or a diet break to try to decrease diet fatigue and stress levels. And what I end up noticing is they'll end up dropping a few pounds on the scale almost right after. So it's like they have a refeed and they're they're emailing or texting me like the next couple of days, like, hey, my, my weight finally dropped, and it was just due that dissipation of fatigue because if I do a carbohydrate refeed or a, you know a high carb day, we're going to see that insulin comes up and it's going to decrease cortisol secretion. And so a lot of times they're just they're eating more calories or they're going back to maintenance at least which they in their mind sometimes they think is going to stall them even more but i'm like listen just increase these carbohydrates we're trying to restore um, not only your ability to continue dieting and stay adherent but i want you to have better training sessions better pumps in the gym all these other other factors but also they get the alleviation of stress and it also causes that lack of um, or that dissipation of water retention and although you know a lot of people can find this very frustrating. I think that we have to always bring it back to the fact that weight loss and fat loss are never linear. So we can't expect to see our weight go down, you know, from one day to another due to how many factors impact our scale weight fluctuations. So if you're in an effective deficit and you know, you're being consistent and there are no other reasons for it. So it's not like you're slipping off your diet. You're forgetting to track. If you're very diligent, I work with clients that are very, um, high level, like high level executives, they're very um, driven individuals. A lot of them are nailing it. And sometimes it really is the stress that is the bottleneck holding them back from seeing the results that they're looking for. And that, you know, a lot of times, sometimes I won't tell them, listen, we're going to alleviate stress and you're going to lose weight. Cause I don't want to make that guarantee. However, when they realize that stress, they, they had a refeed, or I told them to utilize some stress management techniques and they utilized meditation or yoga, or they went for a spa night, or they had a movie night with their kids. Something you just, you know, a mindless activity, just take their mind off the stress. Of work or a deadline or whatever it may be. And then the next day they wake up lighter, then they realize the physiological ramifications of stress and of unmanaged stress. And so then they're more dialed in. It's almost like an awareness tool. Like, listen, you saw that this could happen. And in order to prevent that going forward, let's proactively integrate some stress management techniques. So that can be every day on your lunch break. Let's go for a walk in nature to get that greenhouse effect. Let's, utilize some, you know, sometimes I'll ask clients, what were things that you really enjoyed before you had adult responsibilities? What were activities that you loved?" So I I recently, I had this conversation with a client of mine last week and she really loved painting. And she loved drawing and coloring as a kid. So I said, listen, go get a coloring book, like, you know, or you could paint, like there are so many things that we can integrate, like creative activities, or a lot of times it's like, you know, um, I'll have a client that is extremely busy, but he has like a pet. And I'm like, listen, go to the park with your pet. Like, you know, just things that are going to lower cortisol secretion. There's so many, um, activities that we can integrate into our lives. Besides, obviously there's supplements we can utilize. We can utilize adaptogens and things of that sort, uh, ashwagandha. We can utilize phosphatidine serine, which are going to lower cortisol secretions but a lot of times just those integration of daily habits are really really effective and they go far um they go f- much further than a lot of people imagine until they see the results that they're getting from doing so
0: yeah and uh, look i absolutely agree with that and stress management is such a, an important tool for fat loss that is often dismissed by a lot of people and i th- i feel like it's out of frustration or the sense of urgency that you know That they might have in their head about their fat loss, and they're like, well, how can stress management possibly help? Yet, until they experience it, then they get to understand better, you know, just how it
1: works. 100% 100% and not only from a cosmetic perspective I, I don't think that people realize the true impact that stress has physiologically on all systems so on our metabolism on our hormone levels so for instance if we actually look at research on stress's impact on metabolism um if it was to, and it's not that stress is a good thing you know what i mean we have used stress and we have distress if stress becomes chronic then it becomes a negative stressor essentially so for instance there's research from a Ohio State University that found that subjects that reported one or more stressors, significant stressors in their life in the prior 24 hours, actually decreased their energy expenditure by over 104 calories than those who had lower stresses. And then when they looked at other metabolic markers, they found that... um, There was a relationship and association between higher levels of stress and then postprandial energy expenditure, and also lower rates of fat oxidation and higher insulin levels, which demonstrates how high levels of stress can lower our calorie expenditure and our metabolic flexibility, which is essentially our ability to switch between fuel substrates. So, between utilizing carbs and utilizing fat for fuel. Another thing that a lot of people forget to think about is the fact that stress does. Yeah. Everyone always talks about this stress cortisol connection, which, it, you know, that's very true. However, a lot of people forget the impact that cortisol can actually have on our hormones that regulate our metabolism. So for instance, thyroid production, you know, if you have high cortisol levels, excessively high cortisol levels, what it's going to do is it's going to interrupt that conversion of T4. Which is inactive to metabolically active T3, which is the active form of thyroid, which helps to run our our um, metabolic rate and energy expenditure. And we also see that high levels of stress can increase the production of reverse T3, which is an act inactive form of T3, which doesn't confirm the same metabolic benefits as T3, but it can work as like an antagonist. So we can bind to the same receptors as T3 and essentially render a lot of our T3 useless. And this is something you know I I do a lot of times lab work with clients and those who are highly stressed. I'll generally see they have lower T3 on a lower end of the range and higher reverse T3. Sometimes it'll look like um, they almost have like subclinical hypothyroidism and things of that sort. And it isn't until we really, they people really understand the, Key role that stress can play, or that sleep can play. There's so many factors that are outside of just the programming aspects of just your diet and your training that a lot of people kind of overlook. But if we can take a more all-encompassing viewpoint to all these factors and really make this a lifestyle approach, where yes, we dial in our nutrition, yes, we dial in our training, we go hard in training, we go hard, uh, you know, in terms of being really uh, consistent in the kitchen. However, there's a lot of things outside of the gym and the kitchen that play a vital role in our ability to either make progress or to hit plateaus.
0: Yeah. No, amazing, Brandon. And I feel like this has been such a whirlwind tour of your knowledge. And we've tapped into maybe about 0.05% of it. Um, you are such a wealth of information. Uh, I appreciate it. where can people find you and potentially hook up with you as a coach or actually just get some more of this information. You guys have a fabulous podcast. Can you just share with our listeners? What, Absolutely.
1: What so you guys can feel free to reach out to me. Um best place to reach me is on my email, which is bdacruzfitness at gmail.com. For any content, uh, I can post Every single day, I try to really uh, share a lot of educational posts. So that would be on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore. And then I also, as Mickey alluded to, I do have a podcast. And if you're listening to her podcast, I would hope that you would like mine as well. So it is called the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness Podcast. And the reason for that name is we're really trying to, my goal is to bridge the gap between research and information and practical application, because I am not a researcher, but I am someone that, believes in evidence-based practice. And really what I'm trying to do is bridge that gap between the ivory tower and then the bros in the gym and really trying to bring fourth evidence-based practice, which a lot of people don't realize is a three component model. So it is not only what the the best body, the, the best available uh, evidence that we have from the body of literature, but it also is the experiences and the expertise of the clinician or in our case, the coach. And then also it is the the client's preferences, their abilities, their limitations, and really molding that into this trifecta essentially. And so really on my podcast, I try to present you guys with my experience having coached, you know, at this point, 11 years, and then also what the evidence says to reinforce that, or to be able to to give you guys more of a reinforcing factor as to why certain things work, and also really the name chasing clarity is to shine light on trying to really uh, dispel confusion, misinformation, and disinformation, and provide you guys with clarity on com- uh, complex topics. Essentially,
0: yeah, and you do a fabulous job, Brandon. And as a as a coach, like I learn and reinforce my information so much, and. I know that people who are just interested in fat loss and who are just for their general, um, for themselves will equally get so much from that. So thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Mickey, thank you so much for having me. I, I want to say before I get off, I'm a huge fan of all your work. So it is an absolute honor to be on with you. And uh, I look forward to doing this again in the future.
0: Amazing. Thanks so much, Brandon. righty hopefully you gleaned some awesome information just from the discussion that i had and that is honestly it's not even a tip of the iceberg when it comes to brandon so absolutely check him out on social and check out his podcast your mind will be blown and next week on the podcast team i bring to you the conversation i have with dr eric williamson about the power of protein for the endurance athlete Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, Instagram, threads, and Twitter at Mickey Willardin. Head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, and sign up to my webinar series, because that kicks off very soon. All right, team, you have the best week. See you later.